Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and supplemented them with research into Greco-Roman history. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. A warning, this episode features violent content and rape. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. It was sometime in the second century CE when the astronomer Claudius Ptolemy fixed his telescope on the stars. What he saw inspired him to write the following. I know that I am mortal by nature and ephemeral, but when I trace at my pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies, I no longer touch the earth with my feet. I stand in the presence of Zeus himself and take my fill of ambrosia. When our ancestors wanted to understand the world around them, they looked to the heavens. In the night sky, unblemished by modern light pollution, they found a living, breathing universe. Not just stars, but characters. Heroes and monsters. Gods and goddesses. Constellations that inspired stories that became our first myths. And while these heavenly bodies are no longer worshipped in most corners of the world, they still command great respect as the signs of the Western Zodiac. Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. These 12 constellations make up the backbone of modern astrology, which holds that the movements of the stars and planets can influence and predict what happens on Earth. Each sign roughly coincides with a month of the year, and which sign you're born under can have massive personal implications, affecting everything from your love life to your career, even shaping the bedrock of your very personality. Welcome to Mythology, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is part of our summer solstice takeover. Over the next two weeks, we'll be digging into the myths behind the signs of the Western Zodiac with a special extra episode each Thursday. Check out Tales, Superstitions, and Mythical Monsters for more of the special. Today on Mythology, we're retelling the myths behind Gemini, Cancer, and Leo. These astrological signs are depicted as twins, a crab, and a lion. If you or someone you know was born under one of these signs, listen closely. You might find their personality reflected in myths written centuries before they were born. Coming up, the tale of the Gemini twins. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. We'll begin by turning our gaze to a cluster of 85 stars in the northern celestial hemisphere. They form the shape of two human figures standing side by side. This is the constellation Gemini, the astrological sign of those born between May 21st and June 20th. The name is Latin for twins, and that's exactly what they are. To the Romans, they were Castor and Pollux, but to the Greeks, their inseparable nature earned them a single moniker, the Dioscuroi, or Youths of Zeus. The adventures of these twin heroes are manyfold. They sailed with the Argonauts on their quest for the Golden Fleece, joined the hunt for the Caledonian boar, and rescued their sister, Helen of Troy, after she was kidnapped. But Castor and Pollux's most important myth concerns the start and end of their mortal lives. It's a strange tale, convoluted by many retellings. To get the truth, the twins would have to turn to the one person who knew it best, their mother. Leda stood outside the palace, shading her eyes against the sun as she watched the two riders approach. Her sons, Castor and Pollux, were home at last, returned from another adventure. But as the young men approached, Leda's smile wavered. Their normally cheerful faces were stiff, their brows furrowed. Castor, Pollux, thank the fates you're safe. Had it with that Jason calling you off to Iolcos whenever he's got something dangerous. But Pollux, your face. I'm fine, Mother. We got into a scrap outside of Delphi. You mean you got into a scrap? Pollux is becoming quite the boxer. You know how I hate that. I hope you at least had the sense to stop at the temple and leave offerings while you were there. We did. And we saw the oracle. Kester! We agreed we weren't going to talk about that now. You agreed. I want answers. Boys, can you hold the arguing until you're through the gates? What happened with the Oracle? I take it she didn't have good news? It depends on who you're asking. She told us that our paths would soon diverge. That mine led down to the gates of Hades. And that mine led up to Olympus. 
She ascribed our fates to our divergent natures. But that doesn't make sense. We're twins. Our natures are the same. Mother, do you know what she was talking about? Lita stared at the ground in silence for a long moment, unable to meet her son's gaze. Finally, she took a tremulous breath. We should speak indoors. She led them into a large dining hall, then disappeared to her room. When she returned, she was carrying a wooden chest with a heavy iron lock. Understand, much of this is a mystery, even to me, but I will tell you what I can. Castor and Pollux watched as their mother inserted a key and opened the chest. They leaned forward apprehensively, half expecting whatever was inside to lunge out at them. But when they saw what it was, their faces took on even more puzzled expressions. An egg? More like eggshells. Mother, what is this? The eggshell was the size of a large urn, purple and blue in color, and it shimmered with an otherworldly iridescence. It had split down the middle in hatching and now lay in two roughly equal halves. The story of your origins is not an easy thing to explain. For me, it began on the banks of the Eurotas River. I went there often after my marriage to Dindarius brought me to Sparta. It reminded me of my childhood home. Something about the way the wind coursed through the trees. So powerful, you'd think it was the breath of the gods. I used to lie on the riverbank and watch it shake the branches above me. That's where I was when I heard them. An eagle was chasing a swan across the sky. I say chasing. Really, they were hurtling downward in a mass of talons and feathers. They crashed to earth not far from me, and I ran toward them, shouting and waving my arms in an attempt to scare the eagle off the poor swan. I probably could not have separated the two birds myself if this hadn't worked, but the eagle took off and left his prey behind. The swan was badly hurt, a gaping wound in its chest and one of its wings broken. It looked so desperate. I brought it back to the palace and convinced Tyndarius to let me keep it. I scarcely left the creature's side for weeks as I nursed it back to health. Once it could walk again, it would follow me around the palace and frighten the servants with its honking. It is strange to think of my old pet now, knowing what he really was. He could have turned that eagle into ash in an instant, but he wanted my sympathy. He wanted me. Castor and Pollux listened in silent horror as their mother's story continued. She told them how the swan had revealed itself to be none other than Zeus himself, how he ravaged her and departed, leaving her a shell of horror, confusion, and shame. She kept the truth from her husband, and later that same night, she lay with him. Some months later, she gave birth, not to children, but to a large purple-blue egg. And when the egg hatched, I finally held the two of you for the first time. Then Zeus is our true father? I admit, I always felt there was something that Castor and I were special. But demigods? It is not so simple, I'm afraid. What do you mean? Weren't you listening, brother? Our mother was with two men the night we were conceived. It's like the oracle said. 
different natures. But that's ridiculous. We're twins. I mean, we came from the same egg. Mother, tell him. I was never certain which of you was whose. I had my suspicions. Well, now we know. Congratulations, Pollux. Say hello to everyone on Olympus for me. I'm sure it'll be a divine afterlife. Caster, come on now. You know I'm not going anywhere without you. I don't think it's your choice, Paul. The fates have spoken. Why is he acting like this is my fault? I didn't choose this, and we're still twins. Right, Mother? But Lita did not answer. She was staring at the broken shell. An acute sense of foreboding had gripped her, one she could not shake. As much as she didn't want to admit it, the Oracle's words did change things. Castor and Pollux's days as inseparable brothers were numbered. Pollux spent hours pacing the hall, trying to think what he might say to lift his brother's spirits. But when Castor emerged from his room the next morning, he seemed downright jovial. When Pollux tried to broach the subject of Lita's story, Castor waved him off. Pollux was relieved, believing that Castor had decided to ignore the Oracle's readings. If Oracles never got things wrong, no battle would ever be in question, and bookkeepers would have gone out of business. In any case, they did not speak of their mother's story again. There were plenty of more important disagreements to have, like whether horse racing or ship racing was better, what adventure they should embark on next, or where they should eat for dinner. And then, which of Prince Leucippus's daughters was fairest? Ever since they'd been old enough to care, Castor and Pollux's love lives had been in a constant state of flux. Lita often said that the boys fell fast and moved on faster, but for once, their attention seemed unshakable. The object of their affections was a pair of Mycenaean princesses. Their names were Phoebe and Helira. Like Castor and Pollux, they were best known by a single name, the Leucipides. Leda was delighted to see that her son's hearts had settled at last, but there was one problem. The sisters were already betrothed to two former Argonauts named Lincius and Idas. That wasn't stopping Castor and Pollux, though. They abducted the princesses in the night and were halfway back to Sparta when Idas and Lincius caught up with them. The battle broke out on a coastline of craggy cliffs, not far from where Leda had once rescued an injured swan. Idas and Lincius tried to separate the Dioscuroi, but Castor and Pollux were unpredictable. They would swap opponents without warning, then focus together on a single rival before switching to the next. But the fates were not on the brothers' side that day. Pollux heard a pained gasp. He turned to see Castor standing on a bluff, shock white, a scarlet slash across his chest. He gave his brother a desperate look, then tumbled backwards over the cliff. Pollux let out an anguished howl and hurled his spear at Idas, the man who had just cut down his brother. His aim was true. The spear ripped through Ida's unprotected throat. He was dead before he hit the ground. It had taken only an instant for Pollux to avenge his brother, but in his grief and rage, 
he had forgotten his own opponent. Unarmed and undefended, he turned to see Lincius bearing down on him, nostrils flaring like a bull's, spear raised aloft. He pulled back his arm to throw it. A bolt of lightning tore the spotless sky, crashing down to Lincius's raised spear. Pollux threw up his arms, shielding his face against the blast of air. When he lowered them, Lincius was gone. In the spot where he stood moments ago, there was now a dark smear of ash and blood. But there was someone else in the haze and smoke, a towering figure with eyes that sparked like storm clouds. Immortal Zeus. The god beckoned to his son, and the oracle's words rang in Pollux's ears. Just as she had foretold, he was being invited to join the gods on Mount Olympus. He was being welcomed as an immortal. Coming up, Pollux makes a fateful decision. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own, or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Castor knew he was dead. The deep wound across his chest where Idas had cut him no longer hurt. His body felt weightless, buoyed by the cool water. No doubt it was the river Styx carrying him to the underworld. He felt a pang of regret, not for kidnapping the Lucipides, but for not saying goodbye to Pollux. He would never see his brother again. Are you going to splash around in there forever? Castor opened his eyes and sat up. He was not in a river, but a shallow mountain creek. Pollux stood over him, staring down at him with an impish grin. Pollux? You're not supposed to be here. The Oracle said you were destined for Olympus. 
where exactly do you think we are? Looking around, Castor realized that this definitely wasn't the underworld. It was night, but the stars overhead glittered so brightly he could see for miles. Unfamiliar trees and flora dotted the rocky bluffs, which rose upwards to a towering acropolis. Castor's eyes widened as he took in its marble arches, radiating with light from within. Mount Olympus, home of the gods. Before you get too excited, just know it isn't permanent. I asked Zeus to grant you full immortality, but it's not up to him. Not even the gods can change what the fates have seen. Of course. They want one soul for Olympus and one for Hades. I leave tomorrow then? Yes. And I'm going with you. What? Zeus agreed to a compromise. We both spend one day in Olympus, enjoying the ambrosia of the gods, then both go to the underworld for a day. We'll spend eternity alternating between them, and the fates are satisfied. Plus, we get a change of scenery now and again. You gave up half your immortality for me? There wouldn't be much of an afterlife otherwise. The important thing is, we're together. Ugh. What? Ugh. The important thing is we're together? If we're gonna spend eternity with each other, I'm gonna need you to be a bit less saccharine. It's a heartfelt moment. It's cloying. Cloying? I'm taking it all back. Where's Zeus? There you go. Tell Daddy. He'll fix it. Shut up. Strange as their origins may be, the story of Castor and Pollux is a tale of love and loyalty. They're twins from separate fathers, destined for opposite fates, but bound together by choice. Their decision to spend eternity alternating between Olympus and the underworld places them in a unique position in Greek mythology. They're members of both the physical, mortal world and the spiritual one, and that makes them an appropriate choice for this corner of the Western Zodiac. According to astrologers, Geminis, or people born from May 21st to June 20th, are known for their two-sided personalities. They can take a long time to make a decision or change their mind on a dime, which can make them seem flighty and indecisive. But the truth is more complicated. Geminis are defined by a complex duality. They're literally of two minds about many subjects. They're also known as being passionate and sociable, and for racking up packed social calendars and many hobbies. Not unlike Castor and Pollux, who participated in a number of adventures, crossed paths with countless other heroes, and are considered patrons of sailors as well as horse riders. But the soul of the Geminis can be best seen in Pollux's sacrifice of half his immortality. Geminis may struggle to make a decision, but when they finally pick a partner, they're in it to the end. Now let's turn our focus to another constellation, visible in the Northern Hemisphere during April and May. If you can see the Big Dipper, Follow its pointer stars to a group of stars shaped like a parallelogram with a backward question mark extending from it. It looks a bit like a crouching animal. This is Leo, one of the earliest identified constellations, thanks to its visibility and distinctive shape. It was called Aryo by the Syrians, Shear by the Persians, and Artan by the Turks. They all mean the same thing, 
lion. In Western astrology, Leo's the sign of people born between July 23rd and August 22nd. It's most associated with the myth of the Nemean lion, a creature of dreaded ferocity that prowled a valley between the cities of Cleone and Phlius. Some said that it was the child of the monsters Typhon and Echidna, others that it was the offspring of Zeus and Selene, a creature of moonlight and thunder. Perhaps that is why the people of the Valley of Nemea made their sacrifices to Zeus, hoping to appease the lion. It was not particularly effective. The beast still came for their children and cattle when it was hungry, but it was all they could do. This is the activity the poor shepherd Malorcus was engaged in when the stranger arrived. He had the look of a hunter, muscled but not unusually large, dressed in a simple traveler's cloak. A wild mane of dark hair hung over his shoulders, one of which was slung with a bow and quiver of arrows. A simple club, little more than a polished dowel, hung from his belt. What struck Malorcus most was the way he moved, his steps so silent that he was already in the camp before the shepherd noticed. The stranger fixed him with piercing golden-brown eyes, and a growl rose from his chest. The lion. Um, sorry? Is this not the Valley of Nemea? Uh, that's right. So if one was looking for a Nemean lion... Uh. It wouldn't be a bad place to start. Should have just said you had a death wish and I pointed you on your way. You'll find his den down there. The cave's at the base of the valley where the creek forks. Can't miss it. Just follow the smell of death. May the fates smile on you. Oh, hold on now. What's your hurry? I was just preparing to break fast. You're welcome to join me. Always better to be well fed if you're heading into a fight. I guarantee the lion will be. The stranger paused and gave Malorcus an appraising look. Then, wordlessly, he unshouldered the bow and quiver and dropped them to the ground. The fire was already hot, and before long, a large goat was glistening on the spit. The shepherd and the hunter sat around it, watching the meat crackle and darken. Malorcus was the first to speak. Look, friend, I don't know who he's taken from you. Whoever they are, they're gone. The lion drags our women and children to its den to lure brave men like yourself. Many have gone in, none have returned. Even if you think he is out hunting, his cave has a second hidden entrance. He will be on you before you can so much as raise your club. Hmm. Good advice. I will seal the entrance so it cannot escape. Uh, escape? Sir, clearly you do not understand your foe. This is no ordinary lion you hunt. His savagery knows no limits. His appetite has no end. His claws are sharper than any sword. His teeth long as spear tips. And his hide, his hide is impenetrable. No blade can pierce it. The stranger looked thoughtful. He drew an arrow from his quiver and stared at it for a long moment. The razor sharp tip glinted in the sunlight. Then, as if making a decision, he slid the arrow back into its quiver. I have heard such things, but thought them to be fables. No blades or arrows, then. Sir, this lion, it cannot be killed. 
Oh, the meat is ready. They ate in silence. Once the stranger finished his meal, he pushed himself to his feet and gave a short, gracious bow. Thank you for your hospitality and your advice. If I might ask one more thing, wait a little longer to make your offering. When I return, we will make it together, and thanks for a successful hunt. And if you do not return, then make the offering for me, if you will. Even failed hunts should be celebrated, even fallen heroes remembered. All right, Hunter. I'll wait to make my sacrifice in exchange for an answer. You didn't say before, who is it you're trying to save? The stranger paused while picking up his bow. He turned it in his hands, as if it held the answer to the question he was mulling over. Finally, he looked up. Myself. The stranger turned and strode out of the camp. Malorcus watched as he made his way down into the valley, moving over the sloping rocks with the lethal grace of a predator. As he watched the man descend, he wondered what sort of sacrifice he would be making in the coming days. Before, he would have said it was a foregone conclusion, but the stranger had convinced him of something he had not considered before, that some men are lions. Slaying the Nemean lion was the first of 12 labors performed by the hero Hercules. While these are some of the best-known stories in all of classical mythology, what's often forgotten is that the labors were a form of penance, a way for Hercules to purify his soul after unintentionally killing his wife and children. The lion's strength and ferocity made it a worthy opponent for the mythic hero, but Hercules ultimately defeated it by strangling it with his bare hands. He then used one of the lion's claws to skin it and wore its hide as armor. This cloak eventually became Hercules's most distinguishing feature, to the point that he and the Nemean lion will forever be inseparably linked. Its presence has helped many historians spot Hercules in ancient artwork, which is part of how we know that he was the most famous hero in all of Greco-Roman mythology. Leos are known for bold personalities, bravery, and creativity. They're natural leaders who enjoy being the center of attention and hate being ignored. Their fiery passion can make them a bit dangerous at times. They're the type of people you want on your side and never as your enemies. So while the Nemean lion is the quintessential Leo, Hercules is too. His qualities of bravery, passion, and creativity are on full display in many of his later labors, such as his battle with the dreaded Lernaean Hydra. And that's where our next story begins, with one head down and eight to go. Hercules roared with fury as he hacked through the Hydra's thick, serpentine neck, spraying black blood and viscera into the swamp. A few specks splashed across the lion cloak wrapped around the warrior's thick shoulders. It sizzled and fumed as the Hydra's acid blood burned a hole in the pelt. 
Hercules tore the cloak from his shoulders with his teeth and let it fall into the swamp. The water extinguished the acid instantly, preventing the hole from widening further. <sighs> so much for impenetrable. Hercules snarled and tightened his grip on the Hydra's neck while his eyes watched its other heads. The first time he'd clashed with the beast, it had only had three of them. But as soon as he cut one off, two more grew in its place. Any other hero might have had the sense to stop there, but Hercules had kept swinging, and the heads had kept doubling. He made it all the way to nine before realizing he needed to rethink his approach. Now he was back for more. With a final grunt of effort, Hercules's blow split the Hydra's neck and sent the head tumbling into the swamp. Even before it sank into the water, the stump in his arms began to writhe as two fresh heads began to form. Not this time. Iolos, no! On Hercules's command, a skinny youth came darting out of the swamp, holding a flaming torch high above his head. The boy could not have been a day older than 17, but his hands did not tremble as he pressed the flame against the Hydra's stump. The monster's seven remaining heads screamed in pain. Three lunged for Hercules, and one went for his nephew. Hercules had to drop the severed neck to fend off its jaws, but the trick had worked. The stump thrashed and flailed, but no new heads grew from the cauterized wound. That's it! Now get back out of range and stay there until I call you. Keep the torch blazing. I don't think this beast is fully cooked yet. The battle raged on, with Hercules ducking and dodging his way through the snapping jaws and sprays of acidic blood. The youth hovered on a mud bank nearby, watching nervously and waiting to be called in again. Both the hero and the youth were so focused on the Hydra's heads, they never thought to look behind them. If they had, they would have seen a pair of large, shiny black eyes protruding from the dark water, watching their every move. Coming up, the Zodiac's resident crustacean joins the fight. Now back to the story. If you still got your gaze fixed on Leo, turn back in the direction of Gemini. About halfway between those two constellations is one that looks a bit like an upside-down Y, or if you've got a vivid imagination, a crab with two enormous claws. This is Cancer, the sign for people born between June 21st and July 22nd. Its name comes from the Greek karkinos, literally meaning crab. But the original Cancer wasn't just any crustacean. He was a terrifyingly giant crab that made his home in the dreaded swamps of Lerna.
Lerna was a putrid bog, thick with noxious fumes and decorated with dead fish and frogs. The cries of strange waterfowl mixed with the screams of the recently deceased, hurtling overhead on their way to Hades. There was a well deep in the swamp that served as one of the entrances to the underworld, and this was what the Hydra guarded. The swamp was home to many other strange creatures too, wraiths and witches, and the daughters of Danaeus, 49 of whom killed their husbands and buried the severed heads in the swamp. And of course, the crab. Plato guessed that he came from the sea, but why he stayed is a mystery. Perhaps he grew too large to travel back down the river, for he certainly was massive, the size of a boulder with great claws as strong as iron. He must have lived there a long time to grow to such a size, feeding on fish and birds and detritus. But whether by choice or circumstance, Lerna was his home, and he did not care for intruders. He'd watched the two figures from the moment they entered the swamp. The taller one was unlike any creature he'd seen before, with the posture of a man and dark mane and red-brown fur of a beast. The crab followed them silently to the mouth of the hydra's well. He heard the lion man's roar and saw the hydra come slithering out to face him. What passed through the mind of the crab as he watched the hero and monster clash? Neither Plato, nor Apollodorus, nor Hyginus say whether he cared for the Hydra. While it seems unlikely, there have been stranger friendships. Carrier crabs have been known to carry spiny sea urchins on their shell, even going so far as to wield them as weapons. This provides extra protection for the crab and expands the feeding ground of the urchin, creating a symbiotic relationship that benefits them both. If that was the case here, it would certainly be a terrifying prospect. But all that can be said for sure is what the crab saw and what it did in response. Nephew, bring the torch. Watch the severed necks. Even a bloody stump can still strike. Now back, back, and stay ready! Hercules and his nephew Iolaus had worked the Hydra down to half a dozen heads. The monster seemed to know the danger it was in now, for it struck out with a renewed fury, lunging and snapping, slowly pushing Hercules further back into the swamp. One of the many serpentine necks wrapped around the hero's leg, catching him by surprise and holding him in place. Hercules stepped back with the other leg to balance himself, and his foot plunged into a dark pool. It was then that the crab struck. Hercules howled in pain and surprise. He looked down to see the monstrous crab looming from the water, one of its great pincers fixed around his heel. The blow hurt worse than anything he'd felt in recent memory, worse than losing a finger to the Nemean lion, even. Iolaus started forward to help, but Hercules waved the boy back. No, not until I call you! Hercules kicked with all his might, trying to dislodge his new attacker, but the crab held on tight. 
the Hydra took full advantage of the hero's surprise, striking and biting for all it was worth. Of all of Hercules' attributes, it's his strength that's remembered most. We too often forget the other quality for which he was known, his rage. With a great swing, he clove two more heads from the Hydra. Their necks began to spasm, but he ignored them. Hercules wrenched his foot free from the crab's claw, then brought it crashing down the middle of its back. He stomped again, once, twice, three times. On the fourth stomp, he split the crab's shell, forcing his heel into its soft innards. As it spasmed and twitched, Hercules kicked it back into the water. Then he turned back to his original enemy. The crab lay in the soft mud, still twitching as its guts oozed out into the swamp. Eventually, the sounds of the battle faded, giving way to the familiar stillness of the swamp. Not far away, the hydra lay dead, its final head severed and cauterized. Hercules and his nephew were gone. Did they pause at the sight of the broken crab? Did Hercules remember the last time his rage had gripped him so? Once again, the mythographers do not tell us. What they do say is that that's when someone else made their entrance. Hera, the queen of the gods. She came for the Hydra, just as she had come for the Nemean lion before. Both had fought well against Hercules, the hero whose great fame was a constant reminder of Zeus's infidelity. She plucked the Hydra's spirit from its corpse and placed it in the sky beside the lion. And then, turning to go, she saw the crushed remains of Carquinos. Hera bent and lifted the crab, cradling its massive body in her hands. This was not meant to be your fight, though perhaps I made it yours when I sent the brute into your home. The least I can do is give you a new one. Hera kissed the crab on its cracked shell, then lifted him to the sky. She placed him beside the lion and the hydra, the other proud monsters that had served her faithfully. Centuries later, when Ptolemy turned his telescope skyward, the crab was still there at home in the heavens. Cancer's appearance in Greek mythology may be brief, but there's no question that this monstrous crab is well-suited for his place in the Western Zodiac. The crab's hard outer shell and powerful claws make a natural analogy for the people born under this sign, who are said to be exceptionally careful about who they open up to. They present a tough exterior to protect their true self, which is in fact emotionally sensitive and quite intuitive. When threatened, they're liable to lash out, even against dangerous foes. 
Cancer's small role in Hercules' second labor reveals an even deeper connection between the myth and astrology. It's said that a Cancer's heart is always at home, and they will do anything to defend it. This extends to the people they're closest to. Cancers are described as being exceptionally loyal, particularly to those lucky few who they do get close to. So Hercules may have thought the crab had nothing to do with his fight, but he should have known better. After all, if you walk into someone's house and mess with their friends, you're liable to get pinched. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back this Thursday with the next installment of our Summer Solstice. Join us as we delve into the ancient stories behind Virgo, Libra, and Scorpio. These signs are represented as a maiden, a set of scales, and a scorpion. Their myths are some of the darkest we'll encounter on this series, so you definitely don't want to miss it. As always, you can find more episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. If you're curious about the astrological ideas we touched on in this episode, check out Horoscope Today, another Spotify original from Parcast, which gives a quick daily update on how the stars are affecting each sign of the zodiac. We'll be back Thursday with another epic story. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Greg Castro, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, and Ellie Schiff. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.